But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. And uh, the last couple episodes we've talked fairly extensively about the Young Guns on the ATP Tour. And every week we come back with more news to update from one of that crop of young players. And lo and behold, Karen Hachanov has put his hand up in a big way this week. The Russian Hemsworth. The Good Place has Larry Hemsworth. Think of Karen as Vladimir Hemsworth. <laughs> he's got the looks, he's got the legs, and now he's just a few ranking points shy of the top ten. Mm-hmm. Borna Chorich had assumed the position, the pole position, of preemptive next to enter the top ten from this group. But he lasted only one week, one or two weeks, before mm-hmm. Karen came in. And knocked him back a peg. So Hachanov is at number 11 after winning Paris. And Chorich is now number 12. Karen was actually all the way down at number 27 just a month ago. So he wins Moscow. He wins Paris, which is good for 1,000 points. And if this had happened a bit earlier in the season, he would be in good position to qualify for the World Tour Finals. As it is, he's, a, he's an alternate. Yep, and Borna Chorich is the second alternate. Mm-hmm. If only we could have Isner be the one to drop out. Well, <laughs> well. if only. We will get to the, the World Tour Finals a little bit later on. Stuff has happened. We've had some withdrawals. And that's allowed Isner two positions below number eight to get into the field. But back to Karen Hachanov and a Masters 1000 title. Mm-hmm. Those are very difficult to get. Not everybody <laughs> has those. The Paris has always been a Masters tournament that could be forgotten at the end of the year. It yields some surprise winners. David Ferrer won his only Masters title there. Jack Sock won last year against a surprise finalist, Filip Krajinovich. Over the past 15 years, there have been several first-time Masters winners there. Mm-hmm. This didn't feel fluky, though. It didn't, because the run the run is the stuff of dreams, right? Beating four top ten players, taking out a number one who was on a huge roll, who was a bit ill, a bit under the weather, but as we know, Novak, even sick, was a huge barrier for anyone. Tsitsipas, he beat four top ten players in Toronto before losing to Nadal. Beating Nadal would have been a fifth. Five top ten players in one tournament, that would have been unreal, but... Mathematically, it's difficult to even get that many on one side of the draw. Yeah. Hachanov won his fourth ATP title. He's 22 years old, and this was his third title of the year. Like you said, having just won Moscow a couple weeks ago, this is some kind of momentum he's got going here. If he were to somehow get into the London field, get I mean, it would be bonus points, bonus money. At that point, that would be the incredible cherry on top of his season. But this is the kind of momentum that can spur a player early in the season. when, Especially like in December when they do these big training blocks. Motivation may be hard to find. You know, you may be celebrating the holidays. But when you're feeling so good physically and mentally at the end of the season, that's only going to help, right, moving into Australia. What about Novak this week? So I think a good place to start is the semifinal against Roger Federer. They met earlier in the season in Cincinnati. Roger has since talked about a hand injury that he was dealing with after Wimbledon. I, I, I don't know what the etiquette is to be I mean, talking about I these believe things. him, obviously, but... <laughs> it's, it's so weird to me. Uh... Federer is just coming off his 99th title in Basel. He looked to be in, in pretty good form here. You know, he's been scratchy for a lot of the second half of the year, especially. But this was a very entertaining match. And I don't always say that about Novak-Roger match meetups. Like, it's not, it's not my favorite rivalry. It's not my least favorite. But sometimes I can be 
quite ugly, like they were in Cincinnati. The serve, for the most part, held up for Roger against Novak. Well, save for the tiebreak, the deciding right. tiebreak. So, because that's been his bugaboo lately. He's not been able to hold serve as routinely as he has throughout his career. Right. But I would say against the world's best returner, possibly the best returner ever, Roger at age 37 did not lose serve. He lost the match, but he did not lose mm-hmm. his serve. And that's after offering Novak something like 12 or 13 break points. This is a win-win for Federer, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, he won Basel, but a lot of that was with scratchy play. The serve wasn't that great, and he's able to get through the Paris draw and come this close to beating Novak on a 20-something match win streak, about to retake number one, ha- having all the momentum behind him. And Federer, seemingly out of nowhere, just comes and almost snatches the crown. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can point to those few points in the third set tiebreak shows you how incredibly close this match was. Federer lost the first set in a tiebreak, won the second by breaking serve once, and then we get to another tiebreak in the third set, and everything looks to be going well, but Federer hits an error, then a double fault, then an error, and that's it. Uh, Against Novak, you do not have that wiggle room at all. He was down 6-1 in the blink of an eye, right? Yeah. And I think got he got two of those points back, mm-hmm. and then that was it. But a 37-year-old at the end of the season, after winning a title at home, I think any, any of this retirement talk that came around this fall needs to just stop. I mean, he could still retire. I could absolutely well, if he, see Federer's... If he wanted to, he could, but yeah. it's got to be up to him. No, but my point is saying, in saying this... It doesn't matter to me what the results are. Just stop talking about retirement, period. Right. It, how do you find entertainment in that kind of discourse? It's I, depressing. I don't, I don't it's understand depressing. it. Unless you really hate him. Like, it's it's just depressing. Like, retirement watch? That's the thing? <laughs> There's so much more in tennis to talk about than harping on when one of them, if not the GOAT, is going to retire. If anyone has earned the right to kind of scratch his way around tour and play some bad matches it's him and scratching around tour is a win at a 250 and a semi-final of a masters 1000 get it together people (laughs) as for nole we'll have more to talk about him later on in the show because this ball kid situation just will Mm -hmm. not go away with everyone we had new incidents we had apologies we had fake apologies we had folks out here verdasco standing his ground doubling down (laughs) it's just become too too much elsewhere on the wta tour they crowned their final champion for the season in ashley barty in zhuhai everybody everybody told you zhuhai was going to be wild and it was looking at the group rounds it's it's a unique round robin because there are only three players in each group, and they all play two matches. Mm-hmm. And only one person comes from it. Right. So the semifinalists are all group winners from only three players mm-hmm. in that group. And in three of the groups, all three players went one and one. So nine players plus Sevastova went one and one. When the record is the same, then they go by sets, winning percentage in sets. Then they go by games. So, for example, Ash Barty kicked off the tournament by losing to Sabalenka in straight sets. Mm-hmm. But she was unable to beat Caroline Garcia in straight sets. Right. But it's crazy how tight that group was. Mm-hmm. Garcia, Sabalenka, and Barty all won one and lost one. The only reason that Barty even made the semifinals is that she lost one fewer game than Sabalenka. Like, we're talking about a one percentage point in games one. And the other big wrinkle was that Madison Keys made the semifinals, pulled out, and rather than the tournament issuing a walkover to Garbina Muguruza, they put in the second place finisher from Madison's group, who was Wang Chong. And a lot of people were upset about that, but it turns out that is the stated explicit rules of this tournament, Mm -hmm. which is unusual for, for other tour events and Grand Slams, but that's how it works. Was Muguruza ready to play anybody in that semifinal? Because she got her ass whooped I mean, by Wang Chong. Like two in love? It, it was... I mean, we know 
that Chung has been playing exceptional ball. Mm -hmm. And so for her to make the final of this event is not surprising. But to beat Muguruza like that is alarming. And we saw again, like this, just this really bad look of Sam Sumik and Muguruza's on-court coaching timeouts with Muguruza yelling at him and it's uncomfortable and people calling for her to fire her coach. And listen, we don't know what the right decision is. We don't know what their relationship is like, but they're... Coaching timeouts are very unpleasant Mm -hmm. for everybody. There's a power imbalance in the coaching-player relationship. And it's interesting because the player is really the employer, right? So you would think that the player has the upper hand in that sense. They they pay the bills. Mm -hmm. They write the checks. But in the same way, a lot of players are beholden to coaches because I think they learn to believe that well, if I lose this person, I'm not going to know how to, to win anymore. I'm not going to, like, if if he or she isn't around, I'm going to lose something essential to my game. You're also trading one father figure for another. A lot of these women come up with their father as their very first coach or somebody who's played uh, an integral role in getting them to professional tennis. And so if that father is no longer in the picture, you have oftentimes an older man who is now in the role of coach, assuming that father figure type thing. Mm. And it then becomes easy to see how lines can be so blurred when professionalism mixed with personal and there are all these other considerations. Mm. And like tennis entourages can be so insular and players can be so interior because they have lived such a such an unconventional life by most of our standards. I don't know, these are the people like you see every day, they become like part of your family. I can understand how it's how it doesn't even occur to you to let them go. Like it's, for some people it probably doesn't even approach the, oh, it would be hard to fire them. For a lot of players, it probably doesn't even occur to them that that's an option. See, my read of it is, is, is that it's totally the opposite. Mm. We see folks out here firing people left, right, and center. <laughs> well, like all some the time. players, yeah. Some players, yes. Mm. We're talking about a small subset of players, truly, who can afford to have a year-round coach. Right, right. We see players who have decent years to good years and still let coaches go. How many coaches did we talk to in Cincinnati and then a couple weeks later they're no longer with them? Oh, my God. Like David Taylor David with Taylor, Madison like Keys. The day we put our episode out saying he's Madison Keys' coach, they broke up like yeah. right before the U.S. Open. Babosh left her coach after they'd been together for how long? Mm. Like these things, it's it's ever-changing on the WTA Tour. And so then it becomes strange, particularly strange, where you have a situation where both parties seem incredibly unhappy mm-hmm. with the other. Right. And the results are not matching what should come from such a high-profile coach-player top-notch combination. Like everything about it seems in a downward spiral, yet they persist. <laughs> And so, nevertheless. Yeah, and so the whole thing is just strange. I thought it was interesting last week, Caroline Wozniacki said that her father had offered to kind of hang back several times, and, and he would have said he would have been happy taking a backseat, and she insisted that he continue on as the coach and take a leadership role. You hear people kind of talk shit and you think it's the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Like you think he's the domineering father and, and it's his way or the highway. But it seems like she wanted him in that principal spot on her coaching team. She also said that if he were to stop traveling, she would retire. <laughs> right. So, I mean, their relationship as coach and pupil is firmly entrenched. Mm-hmm. So now, let's... That was a bit of a diversion. We're, right. gonna, we're here talking about Ash Barty. This is very exciting news for us because we've been talking up Ash Barty for years. It was such a pleasure to watch her game against Wong Chang because it is idiosyncratic in that it's not the game that you see anymore on the WTA Tour. There were certain points where I seriously had visions of her using a wooden racket. Like her backhand slice especially that she practically like collapses upon looks like such an old school shot i saw her hit several backhand slice lobs where most players are hitting topspin lobs there's just so much uh so much invention that i think she doesn't get a lot of credit for 
because her personality is super low-key. She's also able to generate such knifing spin on the backhand from high balls. Mm -hmm. So many times, Chong, it seemed like the, the game plan was to hit high to Ash's backhand, and it didn't really matter because <laughs> Ash was able to knife that thing right back low. And, and keep it really deep. Yes. And to your point about all the different shots she's able to hit with the backhand, she's able to, to hit a two-hander, a la Sam Stozer. Their games are somewhat similar, I would say. Mm, yeah. And it's the least attractive-looking stroke that she's got in her arsenal, the two-handed backhand, a la Sam Stozer. <laughs> the, the backhand slice is impeccable. I would say that she has far more consistency on the forehand side, and her serve, again, both having big serves. Mm -hmm. I think Ash just has a lot more consistency in her game compared to Sam. Obviously, no, mm -hmm. but perhaps her game is maybe built a little bit stabler to be around for the long haul. Right. I mean, Sam had flash, mm -hmm. like when she was peaking. That kick serve, her second serve was massive, her net game, the big forehand, but things could go seriously wrong with Sam. Like you said, I think... If Ash can reach that height, her game is less likely to, to fall apart. To discombobulate. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so many times Ash would find herself mid-court, and you could see Chung felt that she had the Barty puzzle solved. <laughs> but there are so many shots that Barty can hit within the service box toward the net. On either wing, with whatever spin, drop shot, topspin, lob, whatever. She has every option at her disposal. And to see her use it so well and make such good choices in that final was, it was breathtaking. It was a, a superb performance. And oftentimes I feel Ash gets overlooked by us as well as somebody who could be on the level of an Osaka achieving, you know, winning big titles, winning slams. You know, we see the mm. ceiling of Naomi as being much higher than Ash. But there's no reason why Barty can't do it as well. Perhaps right. it might be that she needs to cut back on her doubles play eventually because she is the most balanced, well-balanced singles doubles player that there is results-wise in all of tennis. She won four doubles titles this year alone with two different partners, Demi Schurz and Coco Vandewey. She made three finals in singles, winning two this week in Zhuhai and then also in Nottingham. And then she started the year in Sydney with a final, losing to Kerber. So she's kind of bookended her year with with top stuff. And now at a career-high 15, the, the first month of 2019 on home soil could really set her up for big things if she's able to to conquer that, that tricky territory for Aussie players, mm -hmm. starting the season well on home soil. And again, we're talking about Wang Chong for what seems like the fifth episode in a row, she just could not stop winning in Asia. Cracking the top 20 now for the first time, and as per the WTA, she becomes the first Chinese player to finish the year ranked inside the top 20 mm. since Lina retired wow. in 2014. Damn. So she is now the most accomplished Chinese player since Lina. She is the living legacy of Lina. Mm. The first bridge to the next generation. She's the first one to cross the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> the WTA released their calendar for next year, and Zhuhai has actually been moved to before the WTA finals, which people have been clamoring for for a while. Actually, I'm not too fussed about it either way. I think that the WTA has been blessed with a very exciting kind of 11 to 20 in the rankings, so I don't see personally Zhuhai as a letdown of any kind, but a I guess it, it makes sense, logically. Sure, oh, but you do like to have some flow, some build mm. to the season. If it's the end of the season, it should end with the biggest bang. It just occurred to me that this is kind of a, like a Mrs. Kim-style sneak attack episode for us. Because we've been doing like bi-weekly episodes for the last little bit. And now we're coming back to you in back-to-back -back weeks. Can you elaborate on what a Mrs. Kim sneak attack is? 15% gay discount, man. <laughs> We've been watching, well, we, we sped through the first two seasons of Kim's Convenience. How it took us this long to watch this show. Canadian content. We are bad Canadians. Mm -hmm. I am at least. I have a citizenship. You don't. Yeah. You have that excuse. But it, It's filmed in Toronto. You 
it's like very lived in. It feels very Toronto. It's on CBC, which is our public broadcaster, and it's actually so funny. It's so good. It really is. And Simu Lu, who is the lead man on the show. Um, yes. Oh, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So uh, Mrs. Kim on the show, she's the matriarch, and she plans sneak attacks whenever she wants to get something done. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it just happens, and y'all don't really know the scheming that's going on behind the scenes. So this will show up in your podcast catcher like a sneak attack tomorrow morning. <laughs> anyway, Luxika Kumkum, who is from Thailand, who is one of the few openly gay players currently active on the WTA tour, just won her first title in Mumbai. We, we can't say it's her first WTA title because of this weird kind of caveat that the WTA offers, right? Because it's yes. a WTA 125K. So right. I, it's not officially a WTA main tour event. The 125K series kind of happens, you know, there's a few tournaments after the finals, after the year end, and they don't really consider it part of the regular WTA season. So Limoges is happening next week, or this week, actually. Yeah, so while the WTA will be saying that Ash Barty is the final champion of 2018, and you may be confused because, well, hey, there's another tournament going on, this is why. Mm-hmm. And last year, Belinda Bencic won a few, you know, won a lot of matches at the end of the year. A few in this 125K series got her to the Australian Open where she beat Venus Williams. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but good on Luxika because this is a big deal. There have been a couple of stories circulating today. One written by the Indian Express and then Outsports kind of piggybacked off of that to give you some some quotes from it with Kumkum talking specifically about being oftentimes the only openly gay player at an event and some of the things that she had to say were were kind of eye-opening she said that she's used to it now she says sometimes when she goes to another country they're surprised they're like oh you're a man right and she's like no I'm a woman but then they don't say anything they just say okay and that's that which is, it's very fraught, that mm. whole statement that she was able to just drop there very casually. But still a very safe thing for her to experience, you know? Right. We, I feel like we know quite a bit about the North American, Anglo-American gay experience. And she presents something totally outside what we normally see as, as the gay experience in the West, right? She comes from a country, Thailand whose laws are very conservative for gay people who live in the country, but for tourists, almost anything goes. So she, you know, lives in a country where for her, same-sex marriage is not legal, rights for trans people are minimal, but this is a a huge, huge destination for... Gay tourism. uh, Gay tourism for, to put it bluntly, sex tourism. She says it's still not like Taiwan where you can marry and all, but people at home accept it a bit more. But there still is the old thinking. I'm comfortable with this. There are so many people in the world who are gay, but you're still a person. If I'm doing good and I haven't killed anyone, then it's fine. <laughs> and she says her family has been fine with it since she came out to them. Mm-hmm. That they have a good relationship. She said the article states on the Indian Express that Kumkum found solace in her family's acceptance of her. She says, I think I showed them by my actions when I was young. I didn't want to wear a skirt. I was a tomboy. They're happy with me the way I am, too. And then she goes on to say, it's also safe. You don't have a boyfriend. You don't get pregnant early or something like that. <laughs> yes, practical queen. <laughs> we should mention the, the writer of that story was Shahid Judge. Mm-hmm. It was also a big week for Whitney Osigwe. Yeah, she and Coco Goff have been kind of coming up. These two young American girls... She won a title with, well, an ITF with number 37 in the world, Belinda Bencic, in the draw. And like I said earlier, she has all these points at the end of last year that she's trying to defend, keep her ranking stable, and it backfired a little bit this week because she lost to Osigwe, which opens up criticism for her saying, why is she even in an ITF event at this stage in, in the tournament with her ranking? Kudos to Chad CC Smooth 13 because he's been reporting on this extensively on Twitter. If you want to know anything that's going on with any of the young Americans, man or woman, 
Chad's the person to go to. Mm-hmm. Bad news this morning, and it was it was really like a double bad news. It was kind of like a slap and then a punch in the face. Rafa pulls out of the World Tour Finals, ending his season. He's going to take the opportunity to get ankle surgery. Which he already has had. Mm -hmm. The punch in the face is that John Isner, by default, has made it into the World Tour Finals. I thought you were going to say the punch in the face is that Novak is guaranteed year in number one, which was the punch in the face for your mother. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean... Because she DM'd us saying, did I just read this right? Novak's taking Rafa's <laughs> right, number one. Right. Well, first of all, it's not his. <laughs> yeah, like he was he, stealing he, it away from him in the middle of the night. Right. And I can't really begrudge Novak for finishing the year number one because he earned that shit. Rafa has all either pulled out or won every hardcore tournament he's played this year. And he's only won one. So you can figure out how that went. I mean, the season was quite good for him. He mm-hmm. lost only four matches. He won Toronto. He won three clay events. He did things that he hasn't done in years past. He made the semis a deep run at Wimbledon. He made the semis in back-to-back years of the U.S. Open, which he hasn't done in a while. Mm. He was defending in New York, but made the semifinal, having to uh, retire in that match. Sorry, he won four clay events. Okay. And so his record of 45-4... and four it's a very good record, you know, but it mm-hmm. his body just did not allow him to have one of his best seasons statistically ever, which it was on offer for him. Right. I mean, it's not surprising that he pulled out of the World Tour Finals, especially after he pulled out of Paris with the abdominal injury saying that it was threatening to tear or break, in his words, if he had played that tournament. So... It comes as no shock at all. I was surprised and almost like almost amused that he was like, well, I'm laid up with this ab injury, so we're going to take this opportunity to just do some surgery on my ankle. Because this ankle thing came out of nowhere for folks. <laughs> I'm like, uh, we knew about the knee. okay, the tendonitis, <laughs> the abs, but he's getting ankle surgery. <laughs> and I believe, and it's been confirmed by serious Rafa fans on Twitter, that this is the only surgery he's had in his career out of all these injuries. A lot of the other injuries, or I guess you're saying all of them, required rehabilitation. Right, right. He got treatments for tendonitis and stuff like that, but never gone under the knife. And so now Novak will be the year and number one for the fifth time in his career. Federer has done it five times. Rafa would have done it for a fifth time had he been able to secure it this year. And now Novak only trails Pete Sampras, who did it six times. Mm. And if you consider where Novak is coming from at the start of the year, it's doubly incredible, (laughs) truly, that this has happened. Because to start the year, he was ranked in the 20s. He started the year 5-5. and He had zero titles before Wimbledon. And so for the first two-thirds of the season, his year was in the shitter. Yeah, I mean... He was losing to Taro Daniel. Remember that? He lost to Chung at the Australian Open. It was just, it was not great. I'm glad that we didn't go down that road of saying, oh, like, oh, Novak's career is over. (laughs) We never, I never said that. No, we never did that. Thank God, because we'd look really stupid right now. I have to say that there, there is a caveat that with specific relation to the year and number one ranking, Novak was aided by Rafa's absence for much of the second half of the season. Right. And so if you consider to all the other withdrawals at the start of the year, acute quarterfinal or semifinal at three or four of these events, if Rafa was able to get through that Wimbledon semifinal against Novak mm. and stop Novak from winning those 2,000 points and have the difference flipped in his favor, we could be looking at a totally different situation. Right. And so this is not by any means... To diminish what Novak has done, I look at it more as an opportunity to lament how brittle the top four are. Right, but at this stage of their careers, you say that. But where is the rest of the field between Roger, Rafa, and Novak? They can play reduced schedules. Novak can have a mediocre start of the year and run away with the year-end number one. Where is the rest of the field? They're not ready to catch up. Because the heirs apparent are not a few years younger 
they're 10, 15 years younger, mm-hmm. you know? But the, it, it's getting closer. It is getting it closer. It absolutely is getting closer. What we're seeing is that we're, we're having multiple generations skipped over. Yes. That's what's happening. Yeah. It's not just the lost boys, the lost generation, the Dimitrovs of the world, whatever. It's now the Goffins. It's now maybe the teams. He's in a precarious position. Mm-hmm. Like the, the 25 to 30-year-olds, they're, they're in danger of being passed all the way by. And so you have these guys who are coming from the next-gen finals last year to the cusp of the top 10. They're the ones who right. are doing the winning to the extent that if those other guys were doing the same, they'd be pushing for number one. Mm-hmm. You know. So now we have Sasha Zverev, who has been number three for a long time, I think is now ranked number five. Born and George, Hachanov, Kyle Edmund, Tsitsipas has had an amazing year, Medvedev. It seems like, to me, the next great player is going to come out of that group. Because Dimitrov won the, the World Tour Finals last year, and where has he been? Like, what, what has he done since? Still, my point remains. Rafa left a lot of points on the table right. inadvertently he, because of injury. He didn't defend his points at Beijing. He's barely played. Where we are now, though, is that Novak is in a position to, to seriously extend this run at number one. Right. Because, he, because has, he has a bad beginning of 2018 to capitalize on that. Yes. If he's able to get back that feeling at home feeling at the Australian Open and speed through the hardcourt spring, he'll maybe still not be able to overcome Nadal on clay, but it won't matter because he'll still be having a net gain on clay right? compared to this year. And uh, buckle up, folks. <laughs> it's the it's the Nole train this for is the, the considerable future. The Novak Assance. Now, with Rafa not playing London, we know as well that he won't be playing in the Saudi exhibition, which is something we've talked about on the previous episode wanting to see what Novak and Rafa would do in response to uh, the the clamoring the, for both of them to yeah, pull out. The growing pressure. Well, we don't know that he definitely will not. We mm-hmm. can assume that that's done, that the exhibitions are out. That a month and 10 days is not enough to recover? I'm just saying we have to be responsible as mm-hmm. quasi-journalists here. He hasn't said that Saudi is out, but I, I, I we, cannot see him. Play. We've seen a lot of speculation today that it is out. Yeah, and that would be such a convenient way to dodge the issue and also just not play. Well, let's assume that he's not playing. <laughs> right. Let's assume. He so, still doesn't get any brownie points. Oh, no. That just means that he and Novak don't have to... They can stop their library research... They can stop thinking hard about all the political and economic consequences of them playing versus not playing. They They can just relax. They were doing all the JSTOR research. Right. Somebody shot them their password, you know, (laughs) because that stuff is expensive. Uh, But listen, assuming Rafa is out and we do not, we've stated now that we do not give him a free pass for that. Mm -hmm. We would have expected or hoped at least that something more forthcoming or proactive would have been said or done to nip this in the bud on his end. Didn't happen. He doesn't have to worry about it now. What does Novak do? Are the organizers going to scrap it all together now? Is Novak still going to be held to his contract? And and they're going to try and find somebody else to play? Right, but at this point, who is going to step in and be like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll wade into that morass. Okay. Which young player who is ranked in the 20s or 30s would turn down a million dollars, potentially, from heralding from a country that maybe gets the same kind of flag? Right. I'm thinking maybe a young Russian. Would it be that big of an issue for them to take on that situation? Because folks in the West already view Russian politics as in the sewer and like really problematic. Maybe John Isner will go. (laughs) The great diplomat. John Isner. Well, the draw was made at the the uh, World Tour Finals. The groups are Hewitt and Guga, which is a, a big update. It seems like just yesterday those players were actually out here playing. They don't feel like legends yet. Mm-hmm. I still remember Guga beating Agassi and breaking my heart in the finals <laughs> of the year in championships. Mm-hmm. It just could not grasp how Guga was able to play so well. 
on a hard court, especially an indoor hard court. You know, like mm. you are the clay specialist. It wasn't supposed to be his playground. Stay goating on clay. <laughs> Leave Andre alone. Leave Brittany alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I felt. Mm. In the Hewitt group, let's just say that these two groups are not the same. Like, it's actually laughable, one group. For me, if I were... I mean, I have the choice of just not watching from mm-hmm. the comfort of my own home, but there are folks who've already bought tickets. And so one group is Federer, Team, Nishikori, and Kevin Anderson. You have the varying dexterities of Federer, Team, and Nishikori to watch, to revel in. Mm-hmm. And then you have Kevin Anderson, who is the resident good guy on tour, whose game is evolving, becoming less and less of a serve bot by the day. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Guga group, which is Djokovic, Zverev, Cilic, and Isner. Which, I mean, if it's your thing, that's cool. Everybody has a kink. Djokovic obviously is has a, quite a different game than the other three players mm-hmm. in there. I like Cilic a lot. I like him more as a person than a, than a game that I like to watch. I'm just saying, like, if I bought tickets, I would expect to see the Hewitt group. I would want to see tennis like that. You're potentially stuck with three Isner matches. <laughs> three! Right, that's the thing. Like, t- to me, there is... It still feels like there's a lot of star power missing. And I know that time marches on and things change, but Rafa and Delpo both pulled out. Stan didn't qualify. Andy Murray didn't qualify. I realize that men's tennis is moving on and is changing, but it does... It feels like something is missing. From this top eight. This is where perhaps it's a top seven qualify and then you give a wild card to the eighth. I don't know. Mm, like I, you, that's, That doesn't really seem fair. I mean, does, do I care? <laughs> <laughs> like, you need to safeguard against something like this. Like, uh, you could then have Hachanov, Chorich, Tsitsipas, any number of people with the mm. wild card. And also, it's not like you're saying like it's missing the star power. But we have all these young talents in the 11 to 20 range that would have brought a lot more to the table mm-hmm. than Isner. Well, it's, not, it's not that men's tennis is Isner lacking... Did Isner not earn his place he, according to the rules? He absolutely he did. He won Miami. He He's absolutely had did. one of the best years of his career. Yes. He made the semifinal at Wimbledon. I'm not... I don't want to stick up for him, but according to the rules, he, he deserves to be here. That is not in question. <laughs> I don't have to like it. <laughs> of course. I think what's clear is the World Tour Finals loss is the next-gen finals gain. Because this event, in its second year, first of all, has gotten rid of all that trashy, misogynistic uh, opening ceremony thing from last year. They mm-hmm. didn't do that because they were roundly trashed for it. I mean, there's still time for them to do something fucked up. Oh, right. The tournament hasn't even started. Yeah. But we have a, a draw that features a lot of the best players from the ATP main tour. And a lot of the players who are going to make up, you know, the next, hopefully, five to ten years of winners. See, this is this tournament is similar to Zhuhai in that both tournaments offer a wild card. However, Zhuhai has been more discriminant in how they distribute yeah, that wild card. More discerning. <laughs> I mean, it's been given to an Asian player, fine. This this uh, next-gen finals, it's in Milan, and it's run by the Italian Federation, and so they give it to an Italian player. However, it turns they're out giving it to an Italian player under the age of 21, which is, for the second year running, ranked in the outer stratosphere. Like, this is... <laughs> the outer darkness. Uh, I feel bad for this kid. Liam Caruana is an Italian-American player. I, he holds dual citizenship. He was born in Rome. But he's currently ranked 622. He lives in Florida. Mm-hmm. So 622 is really, really far from the rest of these guys. And I can't imagine that he has much of a chance against them. He did win the, the Italian playoff. For this wildcard spot, he beat Berrettini, who was like the two seed in that playoff. And you're not talking about M. Berrettini. No, not Matteo. <laughs> or sleuthing tells us that it's Matteo's brother. Yeah, Jacopo. Mm-hmm. 
so Karawana beat all those people to make this tournament. We also have... But listen, you say that it sucks for him because he doesn't stand a chance, but the format does lend itself to somebody who doesn't necessarily have the same skill set to potentially score an upset. Because they're not playing ads, they're not playing lets, they're playing best of five, but first of four games in each set. Mm-hmm. And if it's three all, then you do a tie break. So like, there is some room for somebody to catch fire and do something. Right. There might be. The field for this next-gen tournament, it features players who are ranked from number 14 in the world, which is Tsitsipas, to number 82 or 85. I'm not quite sure where Hurkacz sits right now, but somewhere in the 80s. And then last year, in 2017, it featured players ranked 35 to 63. So it's it's fairly consistent. You're getting a good swath of the young guys who are already doing well on tour. Mm. And what we saw from the entrance from last year is that a lot of them have been able to parlay that into stellar 2018 seasons. Our source here, Joe Kelly Tennis, he notes on Twitter today that from the participants and alternates in the 2017 Next Gen event, a whole bunch of them are having bust-out seasons in 2018. Hachanov is up to number 11, Chorch is up to number 12, Tsitsipas, who was an alternate last year, he's up to number 15, Medvedev doing well, Chung, who won the tournament last year, started 2018 with a bang at the Australian Open, he's up to number 25, Shapovalov is 27, and then Francis Tiafo is at number 40. So if the goal of this event is to showcase the talent and give them a platform to, to better themselves, the first showing the first holding of this event absolutely did that as to Mm -hmm. whether we can pinpoint it as being like a direct causation correlation kind of situation i don't know if we can say that explicitly but this event has potential to become a thing right maybe they got lucky last year but four of those participants made the atp top 16 one of them was just an alternate in Tsitsipas. And this is against the backdrop of us saying for years how difficult it is, especially on the ATP, for players to make that jump. Right. So now we're finally seeing the big four crumbling over the past few years, but still. Crumbling. Crum- but not crumbling, because <laughs> it's like they're showing cracks. Yeah. The big three is still ranked one, two, three in the rankings. Yes. Alex Verev snuck in there for a long time. And he was meant to be a participant in Milan last year, but didn't play. He Mm -hmm. he would have been the top seed. He qualified again this year and didn't play. As the top seed. Shapovalov qualified this year and he won't play. Right. But they're they're cracks. They're vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. What's your point in saying that? Well, we've kind of ragged on the previous generations for not breaking through, but the top four have had such a stranglehold for so long. That it's gotten to the point where Federer is in his late 30s. Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray are in their early 30s dealing with injuries. And they're still there. Like, mm-hmm. Murray is trying to make his way back. But the other three guys still won't let go. It is so incredibly difficult to break through at this level. Yeah, these guys still have lots of game. I think it really is an mm-hmm. indictment of these other guys. Well, Truly. I don't know. There's been so few opportunities no, but these guys are the when Nadal and uh, Djokovic and Federer are are playing their best. Even today, they're incredibly difficult to beat. But mm. we still saw Hachanov push Nadal twice this year. One right. of one of the right. matches of the year, a four set match, was Hachanov and Nadal at the U.S. Open, and he had played him tough a couple of weeks before then. And where were the the Goffas and the Dimitrovs doing this when they were twenty one, twenty two? You know, I feel like this is this is a new breed of player. Like they've been able to see what's been going on and adjust and and bring something different to the table that the other guys weren't able to. Mm. And I don't think it's because the big four are showing vulnerabilities or showing cracks, because their game is still at a very high level. It may not be the peak that they ever played at. Mm-hmm. Did they ever play all four of them at their peak at the same time? You know, I, I feel like that's this conception of that, that era of the big four being gone and it was so great. It's 
it's what what do you call that nostalgia yeah it's nostalgia but it, in that it, it didn't actually happen that way at the same time there was always opportunity mm-hmm. but a lot of these guys when they had momentum they would just crumble under the pressure and these young guys seem to to have a fearlessness about them maybe that's buoyed by the fact that they know these guys are older they know that they've been through some things and these guys show some nerves now that they didn't in the past mm-hmm. i'll grant that but the, the the landscape's different but and the net effect is that that 24 to 30 year old segment of the atp has just been They've been like it's not too late, but they've been passed over at the moment. They've been quicksanded into the sunken place. <laughs> but really? Yeah. The sunken place. Yeah. Okay. I feel like you should really reserve that. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we'll be telling is a story moving into next season is can these players that broke out in a big way continue that? Because that's that's the really mm-hmm. hard part, right? Yeah. Shapovalov struggled to continue the momentum this season he still had a good season but i mean there was a huge just a massive weight of expectations on him yeah and it it's going to take time like 21 22 is still super young for men's players shapovalov isn't in that category yet Mm. he had one or two results in 2017 but he's still among the next gen but we saw kind of his sophomore season Right, and it was less buy, and it was more hold. Sure, but mm. I'm saying I'm not even looking at him. Okay. People like to talk about Dennis. I'm not talking about Dennis. I'm talking about Karen, who's been out here for a while. Chorich, who's been out here for a while. You know, these guys are into their third, fourth years on tour who won multiple tournaments. Mm. And they're 21, 22. Dennis is 19. You know, like, I'm, I'm going to give him some time to figure his shit out. Like, he's still very fresh. Mm-hmm. And I don't want the, the takeaway from this to be, well, I'm putting too much pressure on these guys. Because you're right. They have to back it up next year. When it comes time to go into the second week of a slam, Sasha Zverev has only done it once. Mm-hmm. And now they have points to defend next year. Exactly. There, there's still a lot to do. I just feel like these guys have something more to offer. Mm. We'll come back to it and see if I was full of shit <laughs> at some point. The groupings. Group A, Tsitsipas, Tiafo, Urkacz, and Munar. Group B is Dimenauer, Fritz, Rublev, who is the only person who played last year, and Caruana. I was shocked that Taylor Fritz made this tournament. I don't know. I just maybe totally forgotten about him. He's he's around. His he, ranking is still pretty good. It's the better than it's ever been. It's in the top fifty. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess I just had him blocked from my Has mind. Has the U.S. media gone quiet about him a little bit? Possibly. Yeah. Or maybe it's... Well, I mean, he's he's winning matches overseas and mm. then at the U.S. clay court in Houston. Mm-hmm. He's not really doing it on bigger stages. Okay. You know, like he's not winning first-round matches at Cincinnati against Zverev right. like Tiafo is doing. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, I mean, we've seen from Taylor Townsend, you can build your ranking by playing these really small events. Right. And I feel like that's been part of his journey this year, which may be why he's gone a little bit more under the radar. It's also because he's, forgive my language, bland as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's not very nice. It's not. It's not very nice. Um, but yeah. One of the things that the Next Gen Finals has done well is the social media push this taking the guys to some boutique in Milan and having them pick out just outrageous clothing to wear mm-hmm. and then take a group photo. It was cute. Francis looks fly as fuck. He was wearing a Gucci or something <laughs> like that. The other guys look, they picked like ridiculous outfits. And Francis is like, well, yeah, I would wear this on a night out on Saturday <laughs> and I would look really good in it. <laughs> Why'd you have to do that to him? Tsitsipas, he looks like the most fashion-forward homeless person. (laughs) You knew, I mean, if you know anything about Tsitsipas, you know he's going to pick the wide-brim hat. He looks like he's Andrea Petkovic's rebellious nephew. (laughs) (laughs) Still got the strains of fashion. Right. 
You know, he would those never, instincts. He would never be preppy. No. Like Auntie Andrea. But it's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> but they do seem to be genuinely enjoying each other, which I which I appreciate. Yeah. We've got to address this bulkhead harassment issue that's been bubbling up this fall. Novak had an unfortunate incident where he kind of swatted a ball out of frustration back to the ball kid and it kind of like hit him in the stomach. And it was just another one in a long line of incidents that are not either not caught by the umpire or they're not seen as that serious. It's like this culture of disrespect toward the volunteers who work on court that has just been allowed to fester. And just because it's Novak Djokovic doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. Some would say that because it's Novak Djokovic and it's a repeat offense, that it should be talked about more than it is. And what are the reasons why we don't talk about it? We harped on it with Verdasco. We talked about Sabalenka throwing her water bottle. Obviously, we've been over, over and back with Serena. Serena doesn't ever target ball kids, No, by the way. So it's not the same thing. And Alexis Ohanian is certainly not helping her cause by sharing the video of Novak, by the way. But my philosophy here is that players will not respect the people who work on the court until they are forced to show respect. Like, that's clear. If in the heat of competition they have chosen over and over again to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And that's not every player, but a lot of players. They've chosen to scream at ball kids, to embarrass them, to harass them. Degrade them. This is players that we like, players that we don't expect it from, players that we do expect it from. It's, there is a culture problem here. And umpires, all the way up to tournament referees, and the leadership of both leagues have not addressed this at all. They have not shown that it's something they find important. To your point... This argument that, well, it's the heat of the moment, what would you do? I guarantee you, the heat of the moment becomes less of an excuse when there's a six-figure fine. Like, it's absolutely something you will Mm. pay exceptional attention to as a player if you know it's going to hurt your bottom line. And why should we subjugate children again? They're children. These are children. They're children. Children. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even like kids. I don't want kids. Don't like kids. I have room in my life for my friends' kids, and that's about it. But come on. It's like they're child laborers. And we have these same players who, when everything is all said and done and all is hunky-dory with the world and they've got their trophy and their money, they can then do the photo optic, posing with the ball kids afterward, hugging them and whatever, blah, 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 to score the PR points. But in the heat of the battle, when character is most often revealed, they're coming up short time and time again. Mm. Like they're, For every person who does this, something like this, they're tenfold the number of players who don't, that we don't pay any attention right. to because right. they're just going about their lives as decent human beings. It doesn't take much to not abuse kids. It really doesn't. And we have to stop tiptoeing around the feelings of these very wealthy, well-compensated players and their fans. Us going after Novak in this situation shouldn't be a clarion call to fans to get upset about it. Because we have done it for everyone Mm -hmm. who's done something like this. We've heard time and time again people label us as Nadal stands as... Serena stands or whatever. There have been countless times when we've called out both of them. Right. Like, that is a hill I can die on comfortably. And know (laughs) that I will rest well (laughs) for the rest of of my time. Because when folks do stuff that's bad, you have to get out of the way of your own fandom. And just acknowledge it. Right. People are complex. They have multiple facets to their beings. Some good, some bad. Some godlike some devilish it's it runs the gamut and this is this is a scourge on tennis right now it's absolutely an abomination and one of the things that i really enjoyed really enjoyed this week was 
the confirmation from Sabalenka herself that she was out of line. Because when her thing happened, folks were going to every length. They were consulting every dictionary, every thesaurus, every cited source. AKA thesaurus, for those of us in North America. (laughs) They had concocted every scenario where she was not abusing a ball kid. Or that I even heard one that she was she actually was, helping. It was bizarre. Yeah, it was actually helping the ball kid get to the the empty bottle. The if if you aren't up to speed on what happened, out of frustration, she kind of launched her garbage onto the court <laughs> for the servants to pick up because she was frustrated about something. Well, that's what it is, right? And is there there is literally nothing more irritating to me than people making a mess and expecting low-wage workers to clean it up after after them. And in this case, no-wage workers. I was about to say. (laughs) I I didn't want to make that caveat because it's still bad. But (laughs) It's just disrespectful. And she she seemed to understand that after she was taken to task, Mm -hmm. and she apologized. It wasn't like... A very good one, but it was still it was like an a, apology. A snarky comment toward the end, like yeah. even if they're really slow, like she like, she's girl, somebody who is girl, no, but listen, up. no, but listen, she's somebody who's new who does get a first time benefit of the doubt, not somebody who's a repeat offender over and over and over again. Mm. Verdasco, right? for example, did offer a well, I wouldn't call it an apology. It was more like I'm sorry that you snowflakes were offended. It was horrible. <laughs> It was a joke. The guy is such an asshole. Fernando Verdasco belongs in the bin. In the, in the bin. In the bin. Get Just get in there. Hashtag trash. <laughs> and so this thing keeps going on. Next episode we come to, there'll be another incident. Right. Perhaps we're more attuned to it. The GIF grabbers are just waiting for the moment and they're just giving it to us in the off season who knows maybe a ball kid will sit down with the daily mail in the uk and give a tell all (laughs) oh lord irina falcone who's been absent from the wta tour for a few months let us know today that she's taking what amounts to an indefinite leave of absence from tennis Mm. that she's been enjoying commentating, podcasting. She was not enjoying her tennis. This is not an injury-related break. Mm. She's young. She's not yet 25. She's still, potentially, if she so chooses, she still has quite a bit of career ahead of her. But she's had the the self-awareness to know that this is something that she needs to take a backseat from right now. Mm-hmm. She said even after taking a couple months off, she picked up a racket the other day, and she was like, I know for sure... I'm not there yet. I don't want to be back. (laughs) And 100% kudos to her for being able to have such complete control over her emotional well-being in this instance. I imagine there's so many players who fall victim to the pressures of the professional tennis life and sacrifice the better part of their 20s and live in misery. Right. But if she does choose to come back... She has Bechinsky as an example, who went and got a degree. Ash Barty, who left the game at a very young age Mm -hmm. and has obviously seen a ton of success. But if she chooses not to come back, that's okay, too. Tennis is not always fun. And it's not the job for everyone, even if you have great talent. Imagine you you work your ass off to be in these tournaments and you have a couple of old queens like us bitching about you nonstop, <laughs> right like there's no hiding because we will see everything <laughs> on that note thanks for listening to episode 141 i am jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john you can also now find me on instagram by the same handle oh wow I'm, i finally have a personal instagram account and the our dog has always had one. You can find him at Vince the Beagle. <laughs> That's Vince. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Find us, uh, the podcast, at The Body Serve on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you to all those who have given us a review in recent weeks. I think the last one we got was from 16 Whiskeys in One Night. 
That was the you, handle on you iTunes? Pace, you pace yourself. Uh, <laughs> that was a delightful review. Thank you. Yeah, that was really kind. Thank you. All this is to say we enjoy when folks give us feedback via email, via Twitter, whatever. A tangible way to help the show is to shoot us a review on iTunes. So please do that if you haven't done already. If you enjoy the show, let everybody else know on iTunes and share the podcast in whatever social media you fancy. Thanks again for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.